Hello and welcome to another late night episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And as you can see from the thumbnail and as you can see on your screen, we've got a response in the Activision Blizzard case by California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing to Activision Blizzard's request only made yesterday to put a pause on the proceedings with California while Activision Blizzard is permitted to investigate whether the state of California violated ethics rules. Now, as you can imagine, and as we covered yesterday, the state of California was unlikely to be terribly pleased by this set of affairs, a set of affairs that was brought upon them by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of the federal government that basically made this ethics case in order to defend the settlement agreement that it had entered into itself with Activision Blizzard. Well, one day after Activision Blizzard filed that document, we have two documents from the state of California that attempt to defend the position that they have found. As we talked about, one of the things that was the obvious defense that the state of California could raise, in fact, we saw it raised initially in the email correspondence from the general counsel of the DFEH to the EEOC, was that the EEOC individuals, the two attorneys that are accused of having gone between the EEOC to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing and thus potentially violating conflict of interest rules in the state of California and honestly everywhere else, didn't actually participate in the Activision Blizzard case while they were at the EEOC. Because in order to trip this particular conflict of interest rule, and any conflict of interest rule really, what the law is interested in is that you actually touched the thing that you cannot now touch at a different organization. So as we might expect, one of the state of California's primary arguments here is that they didn't do that. These two individuals didn't touch what the EEOC accuses them of touching. The problem is the end result is a morass that, in all honesty, Activision Blizzard's request to investigate makes a lot of sense on its face. Let's take a look at what happened here. I, Jeanette Whipper, declare that I am the chief counsel of the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. DFEH made a charge against Activision Blizzard on October 12th, 2018. The EEOC made a charge on September 26th, 2018. And again, you see here the Department of Fair Employment and Housing mentioning the fact that the EEOC didn't tell them that they had made the charge earlier than them, which created a little friction, I would guess, right at the outset. But the EEOC was first to the ball here and the DFEH followed up shortly thereafter. DFEH and EEOC proceeded with coordinated and confidential investigations, and Title VII requires the EEOC to provide the DFEH with information that the EEOC has obtained from employers, including the Activision defendants, upon request and without cost. And we can take a look at the provision that actually covers that here. They reference the fact that this law says the commission, that's the EEOC to you and I, shall furnish upon request and without cost to any state or local agency charged with the administration of a fair employment practice law, information obtained pursuant to subsection C of this section and subject to the jurisdiction of such agency. And that isn't referenced in the declaration or the motion that the state of California makes here, but it's worth noting because the EEOC doesn't have to hand over information that it gathers that has nothing to do with your ambit. And the state of California doesn't have anything to do with federal law. That's the EEOC's purview. And so you might have another jurisdictional friction point there if it came to it. Now, in terms of subsection C, what you see is a reference to actually collecting information from employers. Every employer, employment agency, and labor organization, subject to the subchapter, shall 
keep records, collect records, and make such reports therefrom as the commission requires in terms of fulfilling its purpose. You also see reference to things like a detailed description of the manner in which people are selected to participate in apprenticeships and training programs. And that's about it. Note what it doesn't cover, which we wouldn't expect it to, is anything internal to the EEOC, whether that's strategy, administrative, alliance making, settlement talks, whatever that might be. What this reference is, is that you're going to get the information from Activision Blizzard, the commission is going to request it, and it will turn over to the state agency for purposes of coordination, anything that relates to that state agency's purview. And the state of California has started to set up, as you can see in this declaration, what is going to be one of their defenses, which is, even if there's a conflict of interest, we're working together, Your Honor. What could possibly have gone wrong here that would affect Activision Blizzard? But as we'll talk about as part of this video, I do think the state of California really doesn't think this is an issue, didn't think it was an issue when it brought these attorneys on board, continues to not think it's an issue, thinking, hey, the EEOC, the state of California, we're all on the same side. We're all here to get redress for affected women at Activision Blizzard and every other employer that we might otherwise prosecute as one of these things never really acknowledging that there are all sorts of friction points, all sorts of possibilities for conflict of interest, some of which will come up in this very declaration in emails that were attached for a very different purpose. We'll get there, I promise. Continuing with the declaration of Janet Whipper, in dual filed and coordinated investigations, the exchange of confidential information between the EEOC and DFEH personnel is protected by the work sharing agreement, which we've looked at as part of this series. The work sharing agreement provides in relevant part that the agency accepting information agrees to comply with any confidentiality requirements imposed on the agency providing the information. And they continue to try to attach things like attorney-client privilege to that notion. It's a little bit more unclear to me whether or not that is in fact imposed upon an internal legal aspect of a client at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. We'll leave that aside. They're clearly continue to be upset about it. I didn't cover it in this series, but they've in fact asked to have struck all of the EEOC documents that include what they believe to be privileged information that was communications between the DFEH and EEOC. That's really kind of a more technical legal argument, so we don't cover it in this space, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And then you get the quote from that work sharing agreement where the parties agree that they shall make available for inspection and copying to appropriate officials from the other agency any information that may assist each agency in carrying out its responsibilities. Such information shall include, but not necessarily be limited to, investigative files, conciliation agreements, staffing information, and any other material and data as may be related to the processing of dual filed charges, charges filed by both agencies. And that appears to have worked for at least a portion of time here. But again, what the DFEH is trying to establish, what they will try to establish in the formal motion that we'll take a look at in the second half of this video, is that there's no harm, no foul here. That effectively they were acting as one. It's one organization. These conflict rules shouldn't even apply to this concept. And, and I don't think that's accurate, as we will see. But certainly the existence of the work sharing agreement does create a wrinkle. This is a very unusual set of affairs. And I can honestly sit here and tell you, like many lawyers would in this context, I can't guarantee exactly how a judge will look at all of this in any given instance. That's mind reading. And this is such a weird set of affairs here. I don't know whether particular warrant will be given to the work sharing agreement and the fact that they are supposed to be rowing in roughly the same direction here. As this declaration continues, in other words, DFEH is entitled to information gathered in an EEOC investigation under the party's agreement. Yes, 
give or take. On September 27th, 2021, the EEOC filed a civil complaint, the EEOC action, and in the EEOC action, EEOC filed and lodged documents, including improperly filed and privileged documents, claiming that its former staff, referred to here as Attorney 1 and Attorney 2, directed the dual-filed EEOC commissioner's charge subject to the work-sharing agreement and therefore allege a conflict of interest because those attorneys now work at the DFEH. Now, we looked at that document pretty fulsomely. It didn't appear, at least in the portions that weren't redacted, that the EEOC claimed that these folks directed that particular investigation, but the DFEH certainly read that into the document. While at EEOC, attorneys one and two worked as lawyers in the legal unit. It makes sense. It's usually where you put lawyers. The EEOC confirmed as late as summer 2021, long after attorneys one and two had left the EEOC, and we're actually going to get dates for that little question mark as part of these two documents, that even then, the EEOC's commissioner's charge against the Activision defendants was still in the enforcement unit. So here you can also see kind of one of the defenses metastasizing as the DFEH is going to claim they have an enforcement division at the EEOC, they have a legal division at the EEOC, and apparently never the twain shall meet, which strains credibility to some extent. Generally speaking, you're doing an investigation, you're doing it in concert with what the lawyers will need to prosecute the case. That tends to be how these things work, but I cannot tell you that I know exactly what happens behind the walls of the EEOC when one of these things happens. Maybe somebody that's a former EEOC employee can come into the comments and talk to us a little bit about how that coordination looks. Maybe there's a firewall between enforcement and legal and the Department of Fair Employment and Housing is exactly correct, but I have my doubts, especially since we're also sitting on a document in which the EEOC says exactly the opposite of this. Continuing, after attorneys one and two were hired at the DFEH, but before I, remember we're talking as a declaration of the general counsel, assigned them to any matters, we discussed whether either of them had worked personally and substantially on such matters at the EEOC. Both had not worked personally and substantially on such matters. Now, in terms of a personal declaration, and this is just because I'm a lawyer and these are the kind of things that I look at, I would prefer this to say both informed me that they had not worked on that since you can't personally attest to that as the general counsel of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, but that's fine. That's just a small niggle. That's what I do as a lawyer. Suffice it to say what appears to have happened here, which is very normal in hiring a lateral attorney into your fold, whether that's at a department in a state organization or in another law firm, is you have a screening process. Every single time a lawyer switches firms, you go to the general counsel, you have a conversation. He says, or she says, write down everything that you have worked on that is in the last however many years that we think is going to be applicable to needing to be screened. You create a really, really long table that relates exactly what matters you worked on, what the substance of those matters were, what you did for them. And that general counsel at the new law firm here at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing creates a screening email and a screening memorandum that informs everybody else that they aren't to talk to you about matters X, Y, and Z that you touched personally and substantially when you were at your former employer. That's the normal process. And so here they say, we discussed it. It's unclear whether they actually went through a more formal procedure as would be generally warranted when moving a lateral to a different office. But what appears to be the basis for the Department of Fair Employment and Housing's uh, assertion here was a conversation. Hey, did you work on Activision? No? All right, we're good to go. Continuing. Following EEOC's ethics allegation, both attorneys one and two have confirmed via declaration that neither one of them directed the investigation of the dual filed EEOC commissioner's charge, nor participated personally and substantially regarding it. And we're going to take a look at that as part of this video as well. 
They both submitted declarations stating this to the EEOC on October 5th, after EEOC Los Angeles Regional Attorney Anna Park raised an ethics allegation for the first time based on their participation in the multi-year coordinated investigations. We'll see that date and first time concept come up again. And although I, remember the general counsel of the DFEH, disagreed with EEOC's ethics allegation, I nonetheless screened attorneys one and two from all matters having to do with the defendants here immediately after learning of it. Now, we're going to get to it in the motion, but the state of California, the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, thinks that is, is enough. And I will tell you, if there is a legitimate conflict issue here, that is definitely not enough. Paragraph 18, I also immediately responded to counsel for the EEOC to share that neither attorney one or two participated personally and substantially and to request any documentation or other evidence supporting EEOC's contrary position. In fact, we saw that email. We looked at it here in virtual legality. EEOC has never provided the department with any such evidence or response to my correspondence. And I think that's a fair statement that they didn't respond directly to the general counsel of DFEH. I do think the EEOC's filing of an opposition based on an ethics complaint is a kind of response to that correspondence. Certainly, they attested to the court, which remember, they have a duty of candor to because the department in California believes that that has been breached by the EEOC of the fact that these two were personally responsible for aspects of the Activision case. We'll talk about that as well. Obviously, lots to talk about. I hope you're keeping notes. Paragraph 19, after it became apparent that the EEOC did not intend to respond or withdraw its claims of conflict, I memorialized the existing screening of attorney one and two in letters to each attorney. Since at least 2018, as part of their coordinated investigations into the Activision defendants, DFEH and EEOC have exchanged confidential information. The EEOC and DFEH coordinated investigations into the Activision defendants also involved many communications between and among the EEOC and the DFEH and counsel for Activision. These communications included the Activision Defendants Council, EEOC Council, and Department Council, including Attorneys 1 and 2, as early as June 2021. So, well after the investigation got underway, but also well before you would have had issues with the actual lawsuits being filed, the department here is claiming something important. The EEOC Los Angeles Regional Attorney Anna Park, Attorney One, and Counsel for Defendants exchanged numerous email communications concerning the coordinated investigations. Now, no, we're reading a document that relates to the case between California and Activision, but this paragraph is actually very important to the question of whether the EEOC waived any possible conflict of interest that might have existed, because what they're saying here is that the EEOC had an email exchange with someone that the EEOC itself should have recognized previously worked for it. Now, there's all sorts of questions of who worked with whom. The EEOC, not a small organization. What knowledge should be imputed across the entire entity and that kind of thing. But the state of California is saying, look, you guys were on emails since June. How did this not come up before? And is essentially trying to assert a kind of unclean hands theory that says, look, Activision, you can't get out of this stuff. You could have said something at any time. I do think that's a better argument against the EEOC, which should have stronger knowledge of who previously worked for it, than it is for Activision, where Activision is working with outside counsel, has no reason to believe that there's a specific problem between these two parties, and in all honesty, probably had bunches and bunches and bunches of attorneys on emails that might have exchanged hands that we will see weren't very close in time between the beginning and end of the investigation at issue here. But it is very interesting. Essentially, the state says, look, you knew these people were on the case. 
Paragraph 23, despite continuing communications among attorneys one and two, counsel for the defendants, Activision, and the EEOC, neither defendants counsel nor the EEOC voiced any objection concerning attorneys one and two until the department objected to a proposed consent decree between the EEOC and the Activision defendants. Now, there can be defenses to that. The EEOC could say, hey, we didn't know. It came to the attention of someone that did recognize those two parties. And as soon as we knew, we mentioned something or it can be petty. Right? We've talked about the petty jurisdictional squabble here and the effect that it is having on actually getting redress for the people affected. But the petty jurisdictional squabble can come from both directions. California, clearly the most rhetorically driven, a little bit more emotional in the documents that they're filing on this score. But the EEOC could have said, hey, we're not going to say anything about that. But if you cross us, we are. And then they crossed them. And so the EEOC did. There are ways to read this, depending on how you come at it, that a judge is going to have to sort out. And unfortunately, the best way to sort that out might be through an investigation, much like the one that Activision has asked for. Continuing, the department did not receive advance notice of the proposed consent decree because it was achieved while the Activision defendants refused to participate in the department's mandatory resolution program while concurrently participating in the EEOC conciliation process and mediation from which the department was excluded. Now, that sentence offered to the court here in declaration is disputed by everybody. Activision says, no, we tried to participate. EEOC says you were invited to participate, but you didn't want to. There's emails suggesting that the department didn't want to participate in the EEOC process because it was going to be confidential, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much stuff to unpack here and unwind, and it's impossible from the outside. This is hopefully what the justice system can actually handle and figure out. But a lot of folks here, specifically the two government agencies, are saying things that are directly contradictory in a way that isn't terribly helpful to the process. Paragraph 25, in the proposed consent decree, the Activision defendants and EEOC seek to obtain releases of any and all claims outside of the EEOC lawsuit and its statutory authority, including state law claims covered by our own lawsuit in the Los Angeles Superior Court, which the EEOC again says that it can do. It's not a party to the consent decree. And I think that's where California is getting tripped up here. It's totally justified for them to be upset that the EEOC consent decree and the $18 million and however that's going to be shared amongst people might well wind up affecting its case. But it's really, really important to note that the women affected, to the extent that they are, have the personal ability to decide to sign over and waive their rights for an exchange of money, that they get to choose that not the state of California, not the EEOC, and that Activision Blizzard was always within its rights to offer to settle things with all of them. And it's using the EEOC consent decree to try to organize that. California is not thrilled about that, but the EEOC isn't waiving anything outside its jurisdiction. It's just putting forth a structure in which the women have the option to do so should they elect to do so. If they don't sign up for that portion of the $18 million because they think it's too small or they think it's horrible or the waiver's too big, fully within their rights, they can pursue anything they want with the state of California or in a personal lawsuit and a class action capacity. And California seems to keep getting that wrong primarily because it makes their job harder. I understand it, but it also is a little bit disingenuous as represented before the court. The department attempted to alleviate the EEOC's alleged concerns, although unfounded, but the EEOC ignored the department's efforts, including the declarations from attorneys one and two, and the department's immediate retention of outside counsel at EEOC's request. To date, 
EEOC has not provided the department with any explanation of why the EEOC failed to raise any alleged ethics concerns while the department, including attorneys one and two, worked directly with EEOC counsel and its leadership in the multi-year coordinated investigations of the Activision defendants. The EEOC did not raise these concerns until the department objected to the proposed consent decree between the EEOC and the Activision defendants. Now that's fine. That's totally worthwhile to note with respect to the EEOC part of this, but this isn't the EEOC case. This is the case between California and Activision, and Activision doesn't have to have known that there was this conflict. In fact, it would be standard protocol for counsel to Activision, again, outside counsel, to say, I assume you've gone through your proper screening and waiver protocols and everything else that is necessary to comply with the rules of professional conduct. It would be unusual if you haven't. In fact, just the description in this declaration that the state of California's general counsel had a conversation and that appears to be all she can attest to in this document raises at least a yellow flag as to what their screening procedure is over there. The Department of Fair Employment and Housing, very interesting entity. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong here, but it does call into question some of what they're doing and saying. So here in Exhibit A, they attach these two declarations, which were apparently offered by Attorney 1 and Attorney 2 on October 5th. And the main part of this is, throughout my employment at EEOC, I did not participate personally and substantially in the investigation of EEOC's commissioner charge number, Activision. We'll just shorten it for purposes of this conversation. And the second declaration is, I did not participate personally and substantially in that charge, nor was the investigation of EEOC commissioner charge, Activision, under my official responsibility as a supervisory trial attorney at the EEOC. That sentence is super weird if you're a lawyer. Why in the world was that added? What does this mean? It means that you did something that is suggestive of having personal and substantial participation in the Activision case. It wasn't your official responsibility. Very, very suggestive to a lawyer reading this. And the state of California is going to use this as essentially evidence that these two say that they didn't do something and the matter should be closed. But That's not really how this works, especially when you have a court filed document that the EEOC put forth that says things like, while employed with the EEOC, both attorneys were assigned to work on charge Activision against Activision, and that attorney number two was delegated key authority with respect to the Activision investigation in her role as redacted. For example, redacted and a number of additional lines of redacted. Going so far into the legal opinion here at the end to say, when we get to the end of this, suffice it to say, in sum, both attorneys participated directly and through active supervision in actions going to the heart of the merits of this matter. And so when you look at what exactly these rules require, unfortunately, like most ethics rules, really like most rules, especially if you've been in virtual legality for a while, we don't have great definitions for what this all means, but we do have at least some notion of what it means. It says personal participation includes both direct participation and the supervision of a subordinate's participation. Substantial participation requires that the lawyer's involvement be of significance to the matter. Participation may be substantial even though it is not determinative of the outcome of a particular matter. Personal and substantial participation may occur when, for example, a lawyer participates through decision, approval, disapproval, recommendation, investigation, or the rendering of advice in a particular matter. If the enforcement arm comes over to the legal arm at the EEOC and says, hey, 
Should I proceed in this manner? What questions am I not allowed to ask this person? How should this go to best elicit the information that you're going to need for your case? That's advice in a particular matter. That's helping with an investigation. That's why when we look at what this declaration says, hey, I didn't help in an official capacity. Uh, uh Uh-oh, we're starting to have a problem here with what's being said. And I don't blame necessarily the Department of Fair and Employment and Housing for this, other than the fact that the screening might be off. But certainly by the time you get into this situation and this question, and it's really, really a big deal reported on nationally, if you are the attorneys in question here, you might very well believe this to be true. It doesn't have to be a lie. Yeah, it's penalty of perjury, everything else. You believe that you did not participate personally and substantially. You are not the final arbiter of this. And if a court or someone else finds that you did, this could be a big problem for an attorney, particularly if they are a young attorney. And I don't know the qualities of these two individuals in question because you could get in significant trouble. You could be fired. You could have a malpractice investigation. You could have all sorts of things happen to you. So it's in your best interest to say this, especially if you believe it. We have no reason to believe that they don't believe it, but it's called into question directly by the EEOC in their own document. So it's not a great defense in my opinion, when you look at all of this put together. Exhibit B to that declaration we saw is, again, Ms. Whipper here saying, hey, tell us what you've got on our people and them not responding at all. And then Exhibit C is designed, I think, oh, excuse me, Exhibit C is actually the letter that she sent screening these folks on October 12th, not on October 5th, although this is memorialized here, I guess. Although the department disagrees with the EEOC's claim, and is unaware of any action on your part that would lead to your disqualification under the rules of professional conduct, the most prudent course of action at this time is continuing to screen you from these cases until they are resolved. Based on our current understanding, any work that you may have done regarding the investigation of Activision Blizzard would have been consistent with the shared goals and partnership regarding confidential investigations and confidential information exchange to enforce state and federal anti-discrimination laws consistent with the work sharing agreement. And the department is taking this action as a precaution as EEOC's threatened action to file a motion to disqualify you and possibly the entire department legal division lacks merit. So this is a letter, goes in the file, says this is why we're screening you so that if somebody were to look at this personnel file, it's not because they did something wrong according to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. And then you get to exhibit D And this is designed to show that all of these different people could see that attorneys one and attorney two were on emails. Unfortunately, for purposes of a virtual legality episode, basically everything important is redacted in terms of the the to line and the from line and what's going on here. What's not redacted, I'm not going to go over all the language here, but you can definitely check it out yourself. This will, of course, be linked in the description to the video, are conversations in which the EEOC and the department as early as this summer, well before any lawsuit was filed, don't agree on the jurisdiction, right? As we have noted in our prior email, the department disagrees with Anna Park's claim of jurisdiction over this state investigation. We don't agree with the EEOC's position. There is friction across all of these emails. The department and EEOC have conferred as you suggested, but we don't agree. Please confirm whether we're going to toll some of the deadlines and responsibilities that you have at Activision, where Activision throws up its hands and says, we don't know who to answer here. And Activision's counsel, you don't have to love Activision for this to be true, good counsel is good counsel, is being generous, is saying, hey, we got a lot of people yelling at us right now. We don't know who's in charge. 
The EEOC says they have jurisdiction. The department says they have jurisdiction. And you all are fighting about it throughout all of this. And you can read these emails. They're somewhat interesting. But suffice it to say, that conflict and friction alone is evidence of how two bodies, even within a work-sharing capacity, don't necessarily share the same interests. They can have different philosophies. They can have different strategies. And if you imagine for a second, just backing up one second, that Activision Blizzard is completely innocent. We know that isn't true. But imagine, if you will, somebody that isn't Activision Blizzard that you like is completely innocent. They have two different agencies kind of come down on them with different jurisdictions and different rules and giving you different emails and requesting different things and separate investigations asking to talk to the same people. You can see why one group of people, two attorneys, moving between one strategy and philosophy and internal documentation and administrative pursuits and anything else that they might have, moving over to the other with knowledge of that first party's strengths and weaknesses and proclivities and politics and whatever else it might be, could put you as the defendant in an untenable and unjustified situation. That's what conflict of interest is about. And more importantly for government agencies, it's about the fact that it looks bad. It looks like you can be pilloried by two separate agencies sharing information that they shouldn't be sharing because the confidentiality concept, the work sharing concept, covers stuff about the employers, not the internal machinations of the agencies. And you can see that those internal machinations can cause friction against one agency or the other in this set of emails that were just put forth by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing to show the email correspondence problem, which might be a good argument against the EEOC. There's no indication in the declaration of the motion that it's a good argument against Activision. Why would Activision know this? That remains unclear, which leads us, as promised, to the motion itself. And I apologize, I have at the bottom of this document because I do highlight for my and your benefit here in virtual legality. And we can see in the motion itself, hey, court, they asked for an emergency stay. Let's not do this. Why? They say defendants Activision Blizzard ex parte application to stay creates an unnecessary fire drill through an improper procedural vehicle based on a substantive non-issue. The court should deny the motion without prejudice to Activision's option to file a properly noticed motion. Hey, this is a special case. They're trying to get the court to act on this on an emergency basis. The court should say no to that and they can bring a normal motion that we can all be briefed on. And we're going to talk about the specifics there as we look at this motion. But one of the early procedural questions is, is this the right way to do it? Activision says that it is. In their document that we looked at yesterday, says, look, if they are completely tainted, if this conflict of interest is justified, if we assume that is the case, then everything they've done, at least since those people came over, everything that they are doing is tainted. We're wasting time because all of this is going to be rolled back. So they tell the court, this is an emergency because we have to file an answer. We don't want to deal with any of them until we get this sorted out. So let's stay and let's sort it out. Based on the conflagration of these specific arguments from the EEOC and Activision and the DFEH, all I can tell you is I have no idea what these people did, whether it was personal, whether it was substantive, whether it was actually effective against Activision at the EEOC. And it does come to a conclusion in my mind that says, yeah, probably we should pause and take a look at this so that you don't have to redo stuff that you don't otherwise want to redo. Does that mean that Activision 
gets to pause it? Maybe, maybe not. Can the court do something on its own recognizance? Could it essentially say, we're going to proceed forward, but Activision is noted as being playing this baseball game under protest? Maybe. It's unclear, but let's continue on to talk about the motion itself. They say, the substance of Activision's assertion is that two public servants once represented the American people at the EEOC while the EEOC was investigating Activision's violations of federal laws protecting against sex-based discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, and that those two public servants then left the EEOC and now work at the DFEH, where they have participated in litigating claims on behalf of the people of California, challenging Activision's violations of state laws protecting against sex-based discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. What could be simpler, Your Honor? These two dedicated and selfless public servants are doing the same thing at both locations. There can be no conflict here. Activision hopes to conjure a scandal from these mundane facts. Truth be told, the EEOC hoped to conjure a scandal before Activision. Activision just took the lead. Based on an aggressive misreading of California Rules of Professional Conduct 111 and 43. As to Rule 111, even accepting that it applies here, even accepting there's a conflict, the two public servants at issue do not fit within its purview because they had minimal involvement with the EEOC's investigation as they worked in a different department, and they are now screened from this matter, precluding application of Rule 111B. And this is where the lawyer in me starts to get a little bit irritated, right? I want both sides to make good, strong arguments that are within the ambit of the statutes that they're talking about, because that's how you get to the core truth. California reaches too far here. They say, since they are now screened, there can be no reason that there's a problem here. We know that that's not the case based on the videos we've already done in virtual reality, but let's look at something different. Let's look at the California Lawyers Association talking about Rule 111. It says, in those instances where the rules of professional conduct require an ethical screen to permit others in the firm to provide legal service, the ethical screen must be timely. In fact, you won't see the word timely in the recitation in the motion, but if we go and we actually look at the rule, oh, what do you know? It's right there, timely screened. In fact, the timeliness component is one of the most important of a screening mechanism. That's why you ask the questions. That's why you go through the process as they come in the door. Or as the California Lawyers Association says here, in practice, this means instituting the screen as soon as reasonably possible following discovery of the conflict by any individual in the firm. California did do that, but factors that could potentially affect a determination of whether the screen had been set up timely would be whether the prohibited individual provided any confidential information to any other person in the firm, how much time passed since the firm undertook the affected representation that the prohibited individual was to be screened from, how much work the firm had done before the screen was instituted, and whether the conflict was identifiable at an earlier time. Again, assuming that there is a legitimate conflict that would be borne out by either the EEOC or an Activision investigation, it should have been able to be noted by the state of California really on day one. The final sentence here from the California Lawyers Association says, we note that to the extent the prohibited individual provided material information to people working on the affected representation before a screen is implemented, it would necessarily be untimely. If something got through the door before you closed it, it's not timely anymore. So if this was a conflict, you closing it years after the fact, it doesn't get you out of a real, real problem with the way your litigation and potentially your investigation was operated. Then they treat rule 4.3 just perfunctorily. We'll talk about that. That's the one where Activision says, you sent an email telling people they didn't need a lawyer. And the EEOC brought that up. Activision Blizzard followed suit. Here, the department just says, nah, that doesn't apply. 
with little more than that sentence, but we'll talk about why that's a problem in and of itself. First, we start with procedure. Doesn't need to be on an emergency basis. There is no emergency meriting ex parte treatment. This is no possibility of ongoing harm or change in circumstances because the relevant facts occurred years ago and attorneys one and two are no longer working on the department case. We screened them. It's done. And that kind of belies the problem with the state of California's position here, right? You can't have a tainted, conflict-filled investigation and litigation and then say, oh, uh, we've screened them now, but all that stuff is good. As we talked about yesterday, please do check out that video. Essentially, you're talking about fruit from the poisonous tree. If there is a conflict, if the entire department is tainted, you have to figure out how far back you can go before you're not allowed to use any of that work product. The issue has been discussed by the parties over the past 15 days, resulting in Activision submitting a carefully written 13-page motion with approximately 200 pages of supporting material. In essence, Activision suggests that there is an emergency meriting extreme ex parte relief, even though all the relevant facts are in the past, and the core relief it proposes has been accomplished through the department's cautionary screen. That's flatly not true. This is not a past set of events. If the investigation was compromised, if the litigation was compromised, that is compromised as of right now. So the question is whether or not those folks participated personally and substantially in the Activision case. What happens now, screening outside counsel, that doesn't matter for the existing work product. And the state of California, I want to say knows that, but I am going to go so far as to say should know that. So there's a little bit of disingenuousness in this particular argument. Second, This is not an issue appropriate for a stay, given that the core remedy Activision seeks, the opportunity to engage in discovery is available in the normal course of litigation. That's a boilerplate type sentence, and that makes a lot of sense in most circumstances, but it doesn't make a ton of sense when discovery, a legal process, is one that would be engaged with by potentially conflicted attorneys at the entire Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Activision makes a good point that this is essentially a systemic issue and one that needs to be addressed very, very quickly. Now, like I said, the court might say, just go for right now, under protest, investigate at the same time, and we'll proceed as if we know that you're not waiving your argument against conflict. You've done it so far. Let's just continue, run the course, and then when this comes up, when it comes to fruition, you can bring the claim more fulsomely. That's how I imagine it might go, but the court has any number of powers to determine what this looks like on the ground floor. Third, the underlying ethical question is readily resolved in either of two ways. One, The two lawyers at issue have sworn as officers of the court that they did not fall within the purview of the rule because they were not personally and substantially involved in the EEOC investigation. And two, the Outen and Golden law firm has appeared on behalf of the department and none of the Rule 111 arguments Activision advances could apply to that firm. And that's not accurate either. Same thing that we just talked about, fruit of the poisonous tree. You also probably don't have to take as certain the sworn affidavits of the people that would otherwise get in a lot of trouble if they were personally and substantially involved, especially when you've got an EEOC document that says the opposite. Lastly, Activision's purported violation of Rule 4.3 could not form the basis for ex parte relief or a stay, even if it were plausible, which it is not. Factual background, we've talked about a lot of this, but we get some dates here that are pretty important. The department attorneys, Activision targets, one and two, and the department more generally have all conducted themselves properly. Now, I have to point out, That's a legal conclusion, and they put it at the first sentence of their factual background. California is upset about this, and they're they're using all the weapons that they have at their disposal. But they want the court to know they acted appropriately. Everything was done above board. This is all ridiculous, Your Honor. Attorney One worked for the EEOC in the legal unit until approximately mid-2019. Remember the dates here. So 
early 2018, the EEOC gets a call from a Blizzard HR rep, says, hey, you got to look into things here. The EEOC takes its sweet time before filing a charge in September. The department gets a similar kind of call sometime in the middle of 2018 and files its charge a couple of weeks after the EEOC does. So that's late 2018 where things really start cooking. Mid-2019, Attorney One leaves the EEOC. So between late 2018 and mid-2019, that's where they could have acquired knowledge about how the Activision case was working. Hard to say when everything's redacted. Then Attorney One began work for the department in approximately September of 2020. So it's a good distance in time. It's a year and a half, probably had a different job in between those two locations. But we now know that Attorney One participated substantially in the DFEH case for the better part of a year. Going from September 2020 to October 2021, Attorney Two worked for the EEOC in the legal unit until approximately early 2020. So this person worked at the EEOC until the top of 2020 and then began work for the department in July of 2020. So probably went straight from the EEOC to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Also worked longer with the EEOC in respect of Activision. Remember, in terms of those declarations, I believe Attorney 2 was the one that had that somewhat sketchy language about not doing things in an official capacity, which certainly raised questions in my eyes. Continuing with the motion, the EEOC has two relevant divisions, the legal unit and the enforcement unit. Attorneys 1 and 2 worked as lawyers in the legal unit. Throughout their tenure at the EEOC, the EEOC Activision investigation was handled by the enforcement unit. In fact, the EEOC confirmed as late as the summer of 2021, long after Attorneys 1 and 2 had left, that even then the EEOC Activision matter was still in the enforcement unit. That might explain, as the motion says, why those attorneys had so little contact with the EEOC Activision matter while they worked there one or two years ago. And I have no doubt that the bulk of this is enforcement with a little bit of legal, and then the bulk of it is legal with a little bit of enforcement. That seems to be how that split would go in a law firm, but it does strain credibility to suggest the enforcement unit never talks to the legal unit, especially when the EEOC says these folks were assigned to talk to the enforcement unit on these topics. So you're questioning whether or not they ever gave advice to the enforcement unit on the investigation that was ongoing. And whether or not you believe that is going to come down to whether you believe the EEOC or the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. And I don't know that you can actually say one way or the other without getting down to the facts, without having some kind of investigation, whether conducted by Activision Blizzard or someone else. When attorneys one and two began work for the DFEH in 2020, DFEH chief counsel Jeanette Whipper discussed with them their involvement in EEOC matters. Those discussions confirmed that neither Attorney 1 nor Attorney 2 had worked personally and substantially on the EEOC Activision matter, says Janet Whipper, and that's fine, uh, but it appears to be only referenced as a discussion item. Then, in September 2021, the EEOC filed a complaint and proposed settlement on the same day, proposing a mechanism by which Activision could be released from all federal and state claims, even though the EEOC provided no evidence that it had investigated, evaluated, or achieved reasonable value for the state law claims, and even though the EEOC has no authority to prosecute or release state law claims. And again, you see some aligning of what's actually happening here. The EEOC doesn't release anything. The women affected release state claims, release anything else. The EEOC is only releasing Activision from a further litigation by the EEOC. That's all the EEOC can do. You can't release somebody else from claims that they might have against a third party. So the EEOC consent decree is the EEOC saying, we're not going to sue you, Activision, and here's a mechanism by which you might be able to distribute up to $18 million and the women affected 
could otherwise potentially waive their claims and receive that money. And it's up to them. The department immediately screened attorneys one and two from this matter when the EEOC complained. Argument, as we just talked about, it's not an emergency. Here, Activision has long known that the two attorneys at issue once worked for the EEOC. That is objection, facts, not in evidence type material. The declaration doesn't say that. Where they go for that says, in, in fact, Activision has been aware of these attorneys' involvement in the department's lawsuit since well before the complaint was filed bearing their names on July 20th, 2021. But nothing in the declaration, not in those paragraphs that I highlighted when we went through them, talks about Activision's knowledge of what might have been a conflict of interest. And as I said, it's unusual to assume that the parties against you might have a conflict of interest with one another. And Activision has known for over two weeks since October 4th or longer that the EEOC was alleging that two individuals' prior work at the EEOC created a conflict. And this is California trying to state that Activision sat on its hands and waited. In the world of law, October 4th to October 19th really isn't that long. We didn't have EEOC documents formally put forth on this until that weekend, so the 8th and 9th and those kinds of dates. And so I don't know if that's really fair, but California is trying to establish that Activision could have brought an ex parte motion immediately, but instead they waited to write a motion that was well-drafted. I, I don't know exactly what the nature of that argument is, except to suggest that Activision could have gone faster if they really wanted to say this was an emergency. Conversely, granting a stay would dramatically injure the rights of the department and the hundreds of Activision employees it seeks to help in this litigation. A stay of any kind would simply derail the state's important efforts to collect evidence and pursue claims to make these individuals whole. And there again, we have to pause, right? Because we have to remember the whole context of this fight between these government behemoths. And that is that California started all of this by intervening in a settlement agreement between the EEOC and Activision in which any number of women might have been made whole at their election, their decision to decide whether X amount of dollars makes them whole or not. And the state of California says, no, that can't be allowed. They can't have that choice because it's unfair. And the state wants to get the right to make them whole. There is a whole lot of politics going on here. And I very much feel badly for the folks that were actually affected by whatever bad acts might've happened at Activision Blizzard, because this is unfair to you if you were affected that way. This is unfair that the state of California thinks it's so important that they get to drive their own litigation that they say, no, you can't have the option of having redress in a different way. And then brings as a complaint the fact that a stay here to investigate an ethics complaint will prevent them from making you whole. It is an amazing set of arguments. It takes a whole lot of chutzpah to make. I have to respect California for that, but I certainly don't respect the merits of what they have to say in respect to this concept. Therefore, they continue, Activision's attempt to fabricate an emergency through its ex parte application must be rejected. If Activision wishes to get enough information to determine whether a motion is truly worth the court's time, it can do so through the normal discovery process, which is fine, except that the opposing side of that discovery process might be incurably tainted. As the state of California continues, Rule 111 does not apply because it is limited to individuals who worked personally and substantially on the matter at the first agency, yet neither Attorney 1 nor 2 worked personally and substantially on the Activision investigation while at the EEOC. That ends the matter. If Activision chooses to disbelieve the sworn testimony of officers of the court, it can pursue any appropriate relief. 
And again, we're talking about declarations by those two individuals who undoubtedly didn't want to be in this position. I don't blame them for that at all. And you don't have to believe a declaration that they didn't do it. You don't get to put a declaration in front of the court that says, no, your honor, I didn't murder that person. And that ends the matter. It just doesn't. So how the court decides to proceed from there is an open question. Maybe the court says, that's enough evidence for me, and we're going to move forward. Maybe it says, I have no idea what happened. Activision can investigate. I have no idea what happened. Somebody else can investigate. Whatever that looks like, it doesn't end the matter. So the state of California is, again, a little bit disingenuous with these kinds of concepts, especially when the EEOC is going out there with exactly the opposite statement. Separately, even if 111A were to apply, the department's compliance with the requisites of 111B eliminates any potential problem. We already told you that's not accurate. It was not a timely screen if materials were shared, if they were otherwise working on this matter, which they were. Nobody really denies that. Furthermore, Activision can point to no actual or even hypothetical harm because the EEOC and the department have a work sharing agreement that facilitates cooperation and requires them to share information. This is because the EEOC DFEH work share agreement provides that what the EEOC knows, the department knows. Given that the EEOC is statutorily obligated to share even confidential information with the department, any possible information that attorneys one and two might bring from the EEOC to the department would be redundant to the normal flow of information. And again, here, the state of California has something close to a good point, but they go too far. There's a whole host of things that might not be legal information, that might not be employer information, that could be shared amongst parties moving between agencies. The state of California's problem here appears to be with the professional rules of conduct, which is fine. All sorts of rules are not written perfectly, but this is not the appropriate venue to bring that up. The EEOC and the department are not one and the same, even with a joint work sharing agreement. There is a whole host of things that might be shared that could be conflicting. As you can see, while they fight about jurisdiction in the emails this summer that the state of California provided to the court as part of this package. As you can probably tell from my passion on these points, I want the state of California to be doing better here. I think they're close to some good points, but they sure reach very, very far in a number of instances. Aside from all of these reasons why Activision's argument lacks merit, the fact that the department is now represented by the Outen and Golden Law Firm puts all concerns to bed. Activision has not made and could not make any argument for why Outen and Golden cannot litigate this matter on the DFEH's behalf. And I believe they did. Again, if you worked on something and it's tainted, whether or not you can go outside your law firm to get attorneys to, to represent the department, those attorneys can't use whatever was tainted. We're talking about things from potentially very early in the investigation. You talked about those dates from attorneys one and two, and if that investigation itself was tainted, then the outside law firm has to start almost all over. They can't just jump in where you dropped off or else there would be a loophole the size of a truck that unscrupulous law firms, let's not even say agencies like the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, but just unscrupulous lawyers, you know the type, would get in there and say, oh, yeah, that was a conflict, but we did all this stuff and we filed all these suits and you found us out. We're going to screen them now, but everything should be fine from here. The law can't abide that kind of nonsense. And the state of California knows that. The rule suggests no possible restriction on lawyers in other firms, which makes perfect sense since the rule is not designed to strip a party of the right to legal representation as Activision hints is its goal. And I don't really think Activision actually hints at that. They don't want the department lawyers involved. And certainly it's to their benefit to just kick this ball down the road. And you can hate them for that. Absolutely. But 
I don't think they argued that they shouldn't be represented, that the state of California can't have some legal minds look at this. They just might have to start over, at least start early on in the investigation before those attorneys came over. Finally, you have the argument that, as you can see, is one paragraph here, which I don't think really does it justice. Activision said, hey, you told folks they don't need a lawyer, and that's bad. And the state of California says, nah, no biggie. Lastly, Activision's attempt to apply Rule 4.3 to this matter is misplaced. Rule 4.3 prohibits a lawyer in communications with unrepresented individuals on behalf of the lawyer's client from, one, stating or implying that a lawyer is disinterested, two, giving legal advice if the interests of the unrepresented person are in conflict with the client, and three, seeking to obtain privileged or confidential information. Now, Activision made the case, but we can see it kind of writ large just in the way this motion is structured. We know that any given individual affected woman at Activision Blizzard might well be in conflict with the state of California. They well might want to sign up to a waiver, collect some money under the EEOC consent decree, and the state of California very much does not want them to have that right, as we can see from their intervening with that consent decree at the outset. So they're in conflict at that point in time. When you're in conflict and you're a lawyer at the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, you can't give that person legal advice other than to say, go get a lawyer. That's what rule 4.3 actually says. It says, hey, if the lawyer knows or reasonably should know that the interests of the unrepresented person are in conflict with the interests of the client, the lawyer shall not give legal advice to that person. Done. It's not that hard of an ethics rule to follow. And what is the state of California's response? It's not what I thought it would be, which is we're not actually in conflict. We're trying to get redress for these women. We're all on the same side. We're rowing in that direction. No, They don't say we're not in conflict. They say the email in question contains no legal advice. Now, I'll leave that up to you. But the email in question says, we also wanted to follow up and alert you that you may be contacted by private attorneys seeking to become your attorney for this case. It is unnecessary and may be misleading or confusing. I see no other way to read this email other than to say, Our legal advice is that you don't need counsel. We'll take care of it for you. That's legal advice in basically any context. And the fact that their response is, nah, it's not legal advice with no backing, no references to anything, not even the reference to the email itself to talk about the language used is absolutely incredible. The state of California doesn't address what is another elephant in the room. They just dismiss it out of hand call the whole thing substantively meritless, hello, thumbnail, and they seek relief that can pursue in the normal course of litigation. Tell Activision to seek that relief and the department respectively submits that the motion must be denied. So here you go, folks. State of California, big document set, and a whole host of either deliberate or accidental misreadings and reaches too far. I don't want to tell you that Activision Blizzard had the better document here. I don't want to tell you that the EEOC's complaint about this stuff made more sense and seemed to be a little bit more professionally put together. And yet here I am looking at these documents now in whatever number video in this playlist this actually is. What I see is an EEOC set of lawyers that, that do dot their I's, cross their T's, put forth documents that even if you don't like the arguments are well put together, well thought through. Activision Blizzard, obviously represented by a very large law firm. Generally speaking, their documents look good, even though we haven't actually seen formal documents from them. We've only seen kind of emails and motions and counters and exchanges. And the state of California, which very much wants this case, very much wants to litigate against Activision, maybe for good reason. 
We don't actually know because we haven't gone through enough of the process, the crucible in which the truth comes out in litigation, but they very much want to proceed here, going so far as to block women who might otherwise want to get a cut of that consent decree and then make a big deal about it while seemingly not understanding the very rules of professional conduct that govern every single day of their professional lives. I wish I had a different message for you. That's what I see in these documents. If you see them differently, let me know. If you have comments or questions, let me know. I love to have those conversations in this space. Or otherwise, if you think this provides value, and if you got to this point in the video, I would hope that you do, please consider supporting the channel. We can't do it without support at places like Patreon, other methods of support that you can see in the description of this video, or otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends, upvotes, downvotes, comments, putting it in threads, putting it in forums, wherever else you might find yourself, because every little bit of growth helps, every little bit of growth helps grow the channel and what we can do here. Every single document that we looked at today, we had to buy from the Los Angeles courts. So, you know, those will add up if we have to buy a lot more of those, but that's fine. I think these conversations are important. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.